Uh, I'm Dr. T, teaching pastor here at Trace. I'm also the guy responsible for challenging our audiovisual team every Sunday and making sure that they've got something to think about uh, back there. They're fantastic. Thank you guys so much for all you do. I am excited to get to share with you a lesson this morning called Making the Most of It. And I'm gonna cover James chapters three, four, and five. And making the most of it is, is the underlying theme of James 3, 4, and 5. So if you're a visitor, welcome. That's the text I'll be covering. If you're uh, listening online, thank you so much for joining us. That's the text I'll be covering. And if you're a regular attender, we're going to have a lot of fun today. Uh, one of the fun things we're going to do today is I'm going to get to confess a lesson that I learned last week to start uh, this sermon off. And there are times in life where you eat like a bite of humble pie. There are other times in life where you eat a whole entire piece of humble pie. But then there are those rare and informative moments in life where you actually eat the entire pie. So that happened to me last week. I was visiting with my beautiful bride and I was saying, babe, I really am thinking about, you know, changing up my haircut. I wanted to go shorter. And she was like, okay, babe, that's fine. You know, I'll look at some options for you and I'll text you uh, a picture of what I think might work. And so the next day she sends me a picture and the picture was super cool looking. It was like this taper fade, you know, with a short uh, uh, length on top. And I thought, man, how thoughtful of her, you know, to take the time to find a cut that she thinks would look great on me. That's love, right? And then I started to look at the fine print of the photo she sent me. And I'm going to put it on screen here uh, for you this morning. So the fine print of the photo my wife sent, it's a true story, ladies and gentlemen, says the last haircut for balding Man, that's where I'm at in my life right now. I said, babe, what, what did you do? Did you type last haircut for balding men into like Google search bar? And she was like, yeah, babe, that's exactly what I did. I was like, babe, I feel personally attacked. So the lesson I learned is that if you're genetically predisposed to being bald, the time you have with your hair is short and you should make the most of it. That's the lesson that I learned. Okay. Now, for all of us, the time we have here on earth is short, and we should make the most of it. And James is writing a letter to Christians all over the world at the time he wrote this letter, and that's his sentiment. He's like, friends, we just don't have much time here on earth. And so we should take every effort to make the most of the time that we have because it is so short. And there's actually a verse in James chapter four where he says this explicitly. This is James 4.14. And I have this pulled up in the NLT. And here's the way this reads. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. So almost two years ago to the day, my family and I moved to Colorado Springs from Northeast Louisiana. And if you're doing the math, two years ago to the day is like the exact day and time the world shut down because of the 
coronavirus pandemic. And so we moved up here and we're thinking, this is crazy. We don't know anybody. It's going to go, uh, it's going to get even worse than we realize. And God just showed favor and opened doors and connected us to the right people. But as, and we love it here and we love being at Trace. But as I was reflecting back on this particular verse, and one of the reasons I like the NLT is because it translates the word that other translations might call vapor or mist as morning fog. And one of the features of Northeast Louisiana is that it is extremely, and I can't emphasize that enough, it's extremely humid. And I like to get up early and I, I loved waking up early and in the spring, which there's two days of spring in Northeast Louisiana, and in the fall, which there's two days of fall, if you time it right, you see this. There is like a thick morning fog a few inches off the ground that's a, a, about the thickness of a few inches that settles over almost everything, over the grass, over the top of the bayou, uh, even over the road. And what's happening there is that the temperature of the air and the temperature of the ground are different. And there's this kind of sublimation right there over, over the face of just about everything. And, and as the sunrise crests over the horizon, like the second that that happens, this morning fog just vanishes. And it's almost like as the shadow of the night sky falls back because the crest of the sunrise is happening, it's like chasing away this morning fog. One of the, one of the most incredible things to see uh, if you happen to be a morning person. And that's what James is saying. That morning vapor, that morning mist, the morning fog that's, that's here for just seconds and then vanishes. That is what our life is like here on earth. Our time here is short, this side of heaven. And James's implication is we should make the most of every single second that we've been given. And I, I thought Aaron did a fantastic job and Josiah has done a fantastic job of teaching some things that James referenced that would help us with this. But there are three things that I want to mention today. There are a lot of things we could say. I can't cover this exhaustively, but I do want to cover completely at least what James mentions in James chapters three, four, and five about how to make the most of the time you are given in life this side of heaven. So the first principle we might call the making the most of it principle is the be careful how you communicate principle. Be careful how you communicate. So if you were in James 4 and you flip back to James chapter 3 in verses 3 and 5, here's what James says. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Really strong language here from James. In the late 1960s, there were some researchers and medical doctors who were extremely frustrated. Uh, they were trying to figure out how to improve the lives of individuals suffering with schizophrenia. And they were not succeeding. 
Over time, the medical doctors and researchers realized that in the families of schizophrenic individuals, there were some really, really unhealthy patterns of communication. And what these researchers realized is that the more unhealthy the communication in these families, the more profound the symptoms were for the schizophrenic person in those families. And so these researchers developed a few uh, ideas about communication that they hoped to teach families to heal their communication styles and thus uh, reduce the symptoms of the schizophrenic member in the family. And all of these uh, axioms of communication correspond to what James has just said in James 3, 5, and 6. So I want to mention a couple of them for you this morning. The first axiom of communication that these guys developed is that you cannot not communicate. You cannot not communicate. So what James has just said is the tongue, what you say, your verbal communication, corrupts your body, what you do, your behavior. And James says there's this link between what you say, the tongue, and what you do, your body, and your tongue can corrupt your body. And what these researchers decided is that behavior is communication. All behavior is communication. I'll, I'll show you some things that uh, will demonstrate this to be true. If I'm going like this, I'm saying, hey, Trace, hey, everybody online, or I'm saying, bye, guys, go be a Trace. If I go like this, this behavior says great job. All right, if I didn't have a microphone in my hand and wasn't wearing this cool skillet shirt and did like this, you guys would think that I'm ready to fight. All of that's behavior. We actually have a whole language system, American Sign Language, uh, that doesn't involve any verbal communication at all. It's all behavior. And when these, when these researchers realized there is a link between what you say and what you do, and if what you do is a type of communication, then you can't not behave. Like it's impossible for you to not behave. Try it. Go ahead, try it. Try not to behave. I see all of you out there behaving like you're not behaving. Yeah, you can't because it's still behavior, right? Even the silent treatment, even the silent treatment is communication. And in some cases, it's really, really loud communication. So since all behavior is communication and you can't not communicate and you can't not behave, then it follows you can't not communicate. Which means we've gotta be really careful with what comes out of our mouths. Because what comes out of our mouth influences what we do. And what we do often follows the words that come out of our mouth. One author put it like this. In life, it is better well done than well said. I think the way James would restate that is in life, it's better well done and well said. The other thing that James mentions is this idea of great boasting. Not just boasting, that's what is said, but great boasting, which is how the boasting is said. And so the second communication axiom that these researchers developed 
is that all communication kind of has two different layers or two different levels. And the first level is what is actually said. But the second level is how it is said. And ladies and gentlemen, that second level is so important because it tells the person I'm talking to how they should interpret what I have said. Let me give you a for, a for instance here. So let's say I brought my dog in the auditorium and I sat her down and she does not listen. So that would be a miracle, which is why I didn't bring her this morning. Let's say I brought her in and I sat her down and I said, and this is gonna sound really bad, but I said, I think you're the worst dog ever. I'm just gonna let you outside one cold night and hope you don't make it back. Now that's really confusing to her, right? Because the way I am saying it sounds endearing, but what I am actually saying sounds kind of malicious and mean. Okay, or what if I said it like this? I love you. You're the best dog in the whole world. She's gonna cower in fear. Now, what I am actually saying, again, is very endearing, but how I am saying it, frightening. So how is she supposed to interpret that communication? Let me tell you how this is going on in my home right now, like in the last 48 hours. I'll tell one of my kids who has offended another one of my kids, you need to apologize to your sibling. And they say, sorry, and my blood starts boiling and I'm like, you need to apologize. And what do they say? Well, dad, I said, I'm sorry. I, I did. And I'm trying to teach them. It's not just what you say. It's how you say it. So, so that's what James is talking about. Uh, the tongue can corrupt your whole body. It really influences what you do and what you do often flows, uh, follows what you say, so to speak. Um, and it's not just what you say influencing what you do, it's how you say what you say that influences how others interpret it. And if we were to think of this in terms of a relationship, um, all communication involves one of two different postures. So think about this. Um, I, and, and the researchers say you're either in a symmetrical interaction or a complementary interaction. That's just a fancy way of saying you're either arguing or you're agreeing. And an argument is I'm right and I want to prove you wrong. An agreement is, hey, I see it your way. That's a, a complementary way of interacting and I'm going to give you the credit for this one. The point for the purposes of our discussion today is that where these researchers eventually go is there is no such thing as a neutral interaction. All interactions are either bringing me closer together with someone or they're pushing me farther away. There is no neutral. And so that's the, that's the underlying kind of idea here is man, what you say influences what you do and how you say influences how that thing is interpreted and there is no neutral interaction. So if you wanna make the most of your time on earth, this side of heaven, give everything you got to making sure the way you're interpreted is a way that brings you closer to people, not a way that puts more, in a way that puts more distance between you and other people. The best way to do that, teach people how to be humble 
humility. That's the second thing uh, that James teaches us. This is, this is the second making the most of it principle, practice, consistent humility. So I'm going back to James chapter four and verse 10. Here's what James says. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. So when I read something like this in the letter that James wrote to Christians everywhere, my first reaction is, yeah, of course. I will humble myself before the Lord Jesus Christ who loves me and gave his life for me and forgives me and will never leave or forsake me. I, I'm happy to humble myself before the Lord. But James was the brother of Jesus. So let me translate it for you in the language of like James's firsthand experience. Hey, Trace Church, and you watching online, humble yourselves before my older brother and he will lift you up. Trace Church, you don't have to have spent a lot of time around siblings to know that writing that statement would have been as tough as listening to nails like grind down on a chalkboard. Humble yourself before brother. Think, think about what it was like growing up in Jesus's childhood home. So imagine Mary and Joseph are outside and let's say they're tending a fire because they're gonna cook uh, dinner. And uh, inside the house, there's the sound of a clay pot shattering. And here come Mary and Joseph and they rush inside. And there's Jesus and there's James and there's the other siblings and here's this clay pot. What are Jesus's siblings thinking in that moment? I'll tell you what I think they're thinking. I hope mom and dad don't ask Jesus what happened this time. I'm tired of him always telling them the truth. Why can't he just let things go? He's always right, Mr. Perfect. And I'm just tired of never getting away with anything. Can you imagine like the frustration of being Jesus' sibling? You, you knew already when they walked in, it's like, man, it's over with. I may as well just take my licks right now. And I get this sense like Mary and Joseph were like these graceful, God-fearing people. And so I feel like they would have probably given the kids the chance, you know, to share, which kids are not likely to do. So their eyes go from one sibling to the next, to the next, to James. And then it's kind of like this unwritten rule. If we have to go to Jesus, we will. But we sure would like to not have to do that this time, family. And then they look at Jesus and he's like, yep, yeah, it was James again this time, mom and dad. And justice would have been served. Man, that's tough. When I get to heaven, I want to ask James about this verse. And I want to say, man, I'm, I was the oldest of three boys. Like it was constantly WWE in my house, elbow drops off the back uh, rest of couches, like constantly. How, how difficult was it just in terms of like pride and cooperation to be in a family with Jesus? And I think, I, I imagine James saying something like, Trent, it was so difficult until I really realized who he was. And when I saw him beaten, 
and crucified and killed, I realized he's been the Messiah all along. And it humbled me. And that humility changed my life. And I've seen him post-resurrection and I know he's the son of God and he's forgiven me. And if I could do it over again, I would have been humble from the very start. And that humility changed James's life. And if you look at the uh, research on humility, you see there are three really powerful influences or effects of humility on people. The first influence is humility promotes this just honest self-assessment ability. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I hear these wonderful phrases in the word of God, like humble yourself before the Lord. And I wonder how exactly do I do that? What exactly does that mean? I like the way it sounds, but in my everyday life, how do I humble myself before the Lord? And what an honest self-assessment means primarily in the research is that you're willing to share your faults and failures with others, not conceal them. In concealing them, what you're actually trying to do is make yourself seem a little bit better maybe than you are. And that's the opposite of humble. So, so an honesty about your failures and faults is a great way uh, to demonstrate humility. And so if you wanna humble yourself before the Lord, you would do just that. In your prayer time, you would come to Jesus and you would say, Jesus, I am broken and flawed and here are the ways I've messed up in the last day or the last week and I need your forgiveness. That's a way to humble yourself before the Lord. Another effect of humility, not just that it promotes honest self-assessment, it, it, it influences what we would call pro-social behavior, pro-social behavior. People in uh, academic research always use these words that we would never use in everyday life. Pro-social behavior, your ability to get along well with others. Humble people get along well with others. Why? They exhibit the traits of a pro-social personality. Those are found in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is so crazy to read what people have researched over the years about humility and see this exactly corresponds with the word of God. God's word is true. And if we'll follow it, we'll be lifted up by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's wonderful. The third feature in the research uh, that humility uh, promotes in people's personalities is an openness to feedback. Now, this is really cool. Uh, when I'm not at Trace, I'm teaching class or counseling families. And as a teacher, I'm always really interested in how people learn. I wanna be a good teacher. And so if there are things that I should be doing to, to help people learn, I wanna know what those are uh, so that I can do them and make the content I'm trying to teach uh, easier to absorb. But there are also some things that are the responsibility of the learner. And so there were a bunch of people who were interested in what are the personality traits that help college students succeed academically. And I think usually I'm thinking like IQ, but that's not really rooted in personality. Um, and uh, one of the top three personality traits that influence successful academic performance, humility. Why? Because humble people don't think they already know everything. And as a result, they're open to feedback. And when we're open to feedback, it helps us learn. 
And the more we learn, the better we perform. So it's this idea of really learning and growing and developing. And, and as we do, we get the chance to connect better with people, to connect better with people. And that's the third principle uh, that James teaches us. If we wanna make the most of our life here on earth, we should build genuine community, build genuine community. So in James 5, 16, this is what James says. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now this word healed is used only two times in the whole New Testament. It's right here and it's in 1 Peter 2.24. And the last part of 1 Peter 2.24 says, by his wounds, we are healed. And so healing in the New Testament, as far as it relates to this idea of confession, is twofold. First, our confession of our sins and faults to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was wounded and crucified for us, uh, leads him to forgive us of our sins, connects us more deeply with him. And in that forgiveness and deeper connection with Jesus, we actually do get some healing spiritually and otherwise. That's true. But here's the second layer of that. When we confess our faults and failures to someone else and they confess theirs to ours, something really powerful happens. Here's what happens. Have you ever been going through a season in life and felt, felt, to, felt like, I'm all alone in this. Nobody's messed up ever as bad as this before. Nobody's as broken as I am. And then have you ever taken the risk to confess that to somebody? And if you have, maybe there have been times where people have not handled that with grace and mercy and love. And they've said things like, Trent, that's really bad. And that's happened to me. And that's what makes it hard to confess. But sometimes somebody's moved with emotion when I confess my failures and they look back at me right in the eye and they say, hey, Trent, me too. I've screwed up like that too. I've failed that miserably before too. Can we pray for each other? Man, in that moment, there's healing. And that's what James is trying to say. And I just get this sense that there was a conversation between him and Jesus at some point where he could confess and he felt forgiven and that was healing for him. Often um, in life, it's easy to follow these pithy rules. And Pastor Corey, years, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, wrote a whole rap and rhymed it during service, which was awesome. I'm not gonna do that for you today because that really intimidated me, but I did write a rhyming sentence called the confession rule. Here's what it is. The more faults you confess, the more community you possess. That's why I love how we do ministry at Trace, whether it's rooted or celebrate recovery or small groups. It gives us the chance to practice what the Bible is actually teaching. And so if you have felt disconnected from God, that's my encouragement to you is confess your faults and failures to him. But James would say, take that one step further 
and confess to someone else and encourage them to confess to you and pray for each other. And you'll find, Trace, that healing happens as a result. When I'm working with families, um, sometimes I'm trying to get them to understand this idea, but I want it, I want it to happen fast because I don't know how much time I might have. And so I'll ask a question that's a famous question, and this is how I want to wrap up today. It's called the deathbed question. So here's, here's the question. If the unthinkable happened today, and this evening you found yourself on your deathbed, you were hooked up to IVs and you had monitors on your body and you knew for sure that tonight you were gonna go be with Jesus. If you were to be on your deathbed and reflect back over your life, what would you wish you could change if you had the chance to do it differently? Would you wish that you were more harsh with people? Would you wish that you had argued more? Would you wish you had just told people like it was and read more people the right act? Would you wish you had been more self-centered and arrogant and prideful? Would you wish you tried to just get a little bit more for yourself? Would you wish you kept more people at arm's length and did a better job of putting on a facade that you had it all figured out? Or if you found yourself at the end of your life and looked back, would you wish you had been kinder with your words and more soft-spoken, more gentle? Would you wish that you'd been a little less full of self and a little bit more selfless? Would you wish you had served others a little bit more and been a little bit more generous? Would you wish you'd been honest and really took the chance to confess what was really going on with your life so you could connect more deeply with others? Man, that second set of descriptions I know is where I would fall. Somebody was considering this once and wrote a poem that you've probably heard that I'll use to conclude. The poem is called The Dash. I read of a man who stood to speak at a funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on her tombstone from beginning to the end. He noted that first came her date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For the dash represents all the time that she spent alive on earth and now only those that loved her know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things that you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that can still be rearranged. If we could just slow down enough to consider what's true and real and always try to understand the way other people feel and be less quick to anger and show appreciation more 
and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash? We're gonna go to our time of response, Trace. And in a moment, I'm gonna pray. And I hope you'll reflect on that. And I hope you'll walk away from our time here today with a little bit more of a commitment to live life in a way that you make the most of every second that you're giving. Let me just say one thing before we pray and respond. Uh, at Trace, on the front of this stage, we have some white towels that symbolize the forgiveness we have in Christ Jesus. And maybe there are some of you out there that have surrendered your life to Christ, but you've never followed him in baptism. Or maybe you're just not exactly sure what this Jesus thing is all about and you'd like to know more. If, if that's you, the best thing you can do to make the most of your time this side of heaven here on earth is to snag a towel when we, we respond. And if you grab one, meet us out at Next Steps. We wanna talk to you about what that means. For everyone else, there's, there's communion cups on the four sides of this auditorium. Our communion is open. If this is your first time or you've been here for a long time, we want you to take communion and just experience fellowship with Jesus. And again, walk away from here, just, just more committed to making the most of the time you've been given. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, so thankful for Jesus. Uh, so thankful for the forgiveness of sin we find in him and for an opportunity to really make use of our dash, to make the most of the time we've been given here on earth, this side of heaven. God, I just ask your blessing over Trace. Wow, you are doing some awesome things here. Let us steward this well and consistently challenge our hearts to surrender more and more of our lives to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.